0: Please pray with me. Father God, thank you for this beautiful day, for the opportunity to hear the reading of your word and to worship one, with one another. I ask that you bless this time, Lord, in the preaching of your word, that you would be glorified. Lord, that your word, be procl- your word would be proclaimed faithfully and that all the glory and the praise would be yours. In Jesus' name we pray, through the power of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Good morning, everyone. Thank you so much for having me here this morning. Thank you, Father Sean, for inviting me to come and preach with you. By way of an introduction, my name is Zach Jones. I'm a deacon and the assistant rector at Christ Church West Shore out in Avon Lake. My beautiful wife, Bethany, is with us this morning as well. She is currently a law student at Case Western Reserve, so she is the brains of the operation. I'm in my last year seminary at Ashland, Theological Seminary, and I'm also a chaplain candidate in the Army, so it's just been a great time out here in Avon Lake, putting down some roots for a little while, growing with a faith community, and really getting to come back to where we're from. We are both Northeastern Ohioans, and after having traveled around for so long, it's just nice to be back for a little while. So I invite you to turn with me uh, in your Bibles to the Gospel of Luke. Um, chapter 6, beginning with the 17th chapter. We're going to be camping out there this morning. A lot has happened in the Gospel of Luke up to this point, right? Particularly from chapter 4 to where we are now, we have been experiencing kind of a pattern of Jesus working miracles, of Jesus teaching, and of Jesus sending disciples And we find ourselves now in the middle of a teaching segment uh, of Jesus' time uh, in his earthly ministry. In the Gospel of Matthew, you may be familiar with a longer sermon called the Sermon on the Mount. Well, this particular sermon is very similar, but it's called the Sermon on the Plain. Jesus is traveling around teaching, right? So some scholars debate if this is the same sermon or a different one, but everywhere Jesus is going, he's proclaiming a similar message. He's proclaiming a message of a new kingdom. He's proclaiming a message of turning the world upside down. So Tim Keller rightly calls this kingdom that Jesus is proclaiming the upside down kingdom. And as we look at verses 17 through 26 of the Sermon on the Plain, we see Jesus particularly talking about not an act, acts of obedience or moralism to obtain salvation, but rather looking at what it looks like to be a citizen of the upside-down kingdom. This is a prescriptive conversation, not a descriptive conversation. Or, pardon me, descriptive, not prescriptive. Don't do this to become this, but this is what it looks like, rather, to be a citizen of the kingdom. I think to understand the radical nature of this passage, we have to kind of get into the minds of the people of Israel at this time. And really, we're not so different. In the minds of the Israelites, they're experiencing oppression. They're experiencing a feeling of being poor. They're experiencing a feeling of being excluded, right? Under the domination of the Roman Empire. And so when they hear... A lot of what Jesus starts out with proclaiming, they find it relatable, but as we saw a few chapters ago, and we'll see later through this passage, Jesus shifts the conversation and goes from saying things that seem relatable to seeing things that call us out on who we are. I have something really quick to distinguish before we camp out in the Beatitudes and the Woes, which is where we're going to spend most of our time. Luke clearly delineates between two crowds. In verse 17, he says, he came down with them and stood on a level place with a great crowd of his disciples and a great multitude of people. So up to this point, there's been kind of three reactions to Jesus' teachings. There's been crowds who come to get what they can benefit from Jesus, whether that's healing, whether that's maybe feeling a little bit good at the beginning, right, where this is kind of good, useful teaching. There's also disciples, people who want to follow him. And then, as we saw in chapter four a while ago, and we'll see at the culmination of this preaching, there's also a crowd that hates him. It's not fun to be called out on our junk. So when we're looking at verses 20 through 26, how this is going to work, just so you can keep up with me, is I'm going to compare the one blessing to the woe that kind of collides with it. So verse 20 will be compared with 24, uh, 21 to 25, and so on. And we'll see that Jesus is not really getting at a core set of behaviors, but cutting even deeper. He's aiming at what we love, at the core components of who we are. He'll discuss what secures us, what fills us, what consumes us, and what drives us. He's examining our highest allegiance, what it means to be a citizen, not what it means to just be on our best behavior. So if you follow along with me, verse 20 says, he lifted his eyes to the disciples and said, blessed are you who are poor, for yours is the kingdom of God. But woe to you who are rich, which is verse 24, for you have received your consolation. So when we think about ourselves in our context as American Christians, we really are wealthy. We really are rich people. If you woke up this morning and had a selection of shoes that you could pick and a wide variety of clothes and air conditioning, by comparisons to most people for most times, you're very wealthy. Even King Solomon didn't have AC. We're living the dream. This is incredible. So he's not inherently getting at like what you have or what you don't have is bad. The word for poor is describing a pious poor, people who rely on God for what secures them. And so the point here is not if you have money, then you can't be a Christian. The point is that your primary identity ought not to be in your possessions, but in Christ. Money is not the root of all evil, the love of it Is he's confronting what secures us, and it brings to mind the story of the rich man who came to Jesus and asked what he might do to inherit eternal life. Jesus didn't say, "Well, you got money, so you can't go home." Right? He confronts him at his core loves. He first he says, "Do these things, obey the law." And the rich man says, "Oh, I've done that." And he says, "Perfect. So sell your possessions, give them to the poor, and come follow me." And he turns away because he was sad and had a great many things. How hard it is for a rich man to enter heaven, but it's not impossible. Think of Joseph of Arimathea. He used his wealth to bury the King Jesus. There are plenty of examples of wealthy people who are Christians, but there aren't a lot of examples of people who think that in themselves they have it all who are. He's confronting us At what secures us. So, when we think about being poor, our understanding ought to not just be like, do I have a lot of stuff? But what am I doing with that stuff? Jesus spent a lot of time with people who were on the fringe of society. So, perhaps in an American Christian context, when we think about being poor, we think about reaching those who have great need and using our possessions to reach them because ultimately it isn't a matter of how much we have. It's not a matter of whether that stuff is gonna get us anywhere, because it won't, it can be taken in an instance. Rather, to be poor in our wealthy American context might be to depend on God and use our possessions for the good of those who are lacking. So we surrender our wealth to God for the kingdom. That is being a pious, poor Christian in a wealthy America. We move on from there to another component of what it means to be a citizen of the kingdom of God. Verse 21 says, blessed are you who are hungry now, for you shall be satisfied. Contrasting that, verse 25 says, woe to you who are full now, for you shall be hungry. So earlier this week, I've been really trying to focus on eating Healthy, right? So I packed my lunch of Brussels sprouts and chicken, and I was going to wait it out for any kind of dessert opportunities until after I ate healthy. Fill myself up with the good stuff first. On my way to the microwave, a young lady who works at Bay Pres, which is where our offices are located at, came with a big plate of cookies. And she said, hey, you know, would you like some cookies? And my first reaction was like, no, I shouldn't do that. I really want to eat. And as I'm saying that, I'm grabbing cookies. Like, no, I shouldn't have it. But if you insist, take two or three and eat them. And I filled myself up with junk, delicious junk, chocolate chip cookie kind of junk, but junk nonetheless. And like grandma always said, don't eat that first because you'll spoil your dinner. And I did. I wasn't hungry for the good stuff anymore. I wasn't hungry for my chicken and my Brussels sprouts. I ate it because... You know, it's food, and it was sitting right in front of me, but I filled myself up with something that wasn't good for me. So when you hunger and thirst for righteousness, it doesn't mean that you can't go and eat your meal. Go and enjoy fellowship with your friends and your family, have a nice meal, have some times of laughter and good memories, But if we're so busy filling ourselves with the junk of this world, if we're so busy filling ourselves with our own satisfaction, then we're going to not have room to be hungry for the people who are suffering, to hunger and thirst for righteousness. When we're so full of ourselves, we have little room for something else. I think about when I am hungry... Especially as a child when you're hungry, you kind of have two different reactions. If you trust your parents to feed you when you're hungry, say, Mom, Dad, I'm hungry. Give me something to eat. And they're going to say, dinner's on the way. And so you're going to sneak your hand into the cookie jar, take a cookie. Or you're going to wait because you know that what's coming is better than what you can get for yourself. But then the other response might be, I don't trust my parents to feed me and so i am just going to go and eat whatever i want so why do we fill ourselves up with the junk i wonder if it's because we don't have a future kingdom mindset we don't trust that god is going to fulfill his promises at times and so we fill ourselves up with junk and ignore the pain and suffering of the world because it tastes better it feels better to fill ourselves up with anything than to feel like we're lacking or to see the pain of the people in the world and to see what's going on, to see people die of hunger and of thirst and to be oppressed. And we think, I can't deal with this and I don't want to think about it. So I'm going to eat the cookies. I'm going to eat the junk and distract myself. So next time we look at the news or we see somebody on the side of the street, maybe rather than turning up the radio or looking away, at the least, we pray for them and say, Lord, give me a heart for the people who are suffering. Make me hunger now so that when you come again, I'll be filled when you restore all things. A kingdom citizen can hunger now because they know that they will be filled by God. We move on to the second half of verse 21 and the second half of verse 25, which is its contrasting woe, and see, Blessed are you who weep now, for you shall laugh. Woe to you who laugh now, for you shall mourn and weep. So, this term for laughter, It's not saying like, if we tell a good joke, you can laugh. Don't feel bad about laughing at your friend's jokes. Feel bad about laughing at my jokes because they're terrible. I've got the worst dad jokes ever. But if you meet somebody who's genuinely funny, laugh at the jokes, have a good conversation. That's not what he's talking about. He's talking about the kind of gloating that happens when we look at somebody else and say, like the Pharisee, God, thank you that I'm not like that guy. You know, kind of gloating. You know, I've got a lot of problems, but at least I'm not you. You know, I've got my act together. It's a gloating. It's what consumes us. So what he's saying is that we have a heart for them. We don't laugh at them. We don't joke at their suffering. We don't joke at somebody else's shortcomings and compare ourselves saying, "I'm, I'm good, you know. Okay, so maybe I did have that cookie before lunch, but at least I didn't steal from a bank, you know. Jesus is getting at what consumes us, It's good to enjoy your time with your family and your friends and to laugh at good things. And it's good to even have a sense of humor. It helps us get through life together. But if we can go through life apathetic at the sufferings of other people because we see ourselves as having it all together or we're consumed by entertainment and can laugh at pointless things in spite of the suffering of the world then that's the litmus test for being a kingdom citizen in this aspect. It's not, I enjoy a good joke. It's, am I aware of the suffering in this world? And do I care? Do I have a heart for the hurting? So kingdom citizen litmus test number three, do we have a heart for the hurting? What is consuming our focus? What consumes us? Finally, we move on to verse 22 and verse 26. Blessed are you when people hate you, and when they exclude you, and revile you, and spurn your name as evil on account of the Son of Man. Rejoice in that day and leap for joy, for behold, your reward is great in heaven, for so their fathers did to the prophets. But woe to you when all people speak well of you, for so their fathers did to the false prophets. So recapping mean, what's been going on with Jesus at this point, he does miracles, he teaches and he sends disciples, but there's another category in there, he gets hated by a lot of people because he's frank with them and he tells the honest truth about what he's there to do and about what it says about who they are. So a kingdom citizen, you know, and I hope that you can go home today and be around people that you love and that love you back. But if we're going to be kingdom citizens in a world that is not sharing the same focus and the same chief end as the kingdom, then we ought to prepare to get hated. Jesus says some things that people don't mind. And people certainly don't mind when he heals them. Now, the religious elite have a little problem with that when it's done on the Sabbath, but the people it's happening to, they're good with it. Heal me of my diseases. You know, I'd like to feel a little better. I don't wanna have a man cold anymore, so heal me, right? He, they're okay with that. And they're okay with him saying, oh, blessed are you, blessed are you, blessed are you. But when he says, woe to you, and it hits a sweet spot, when he says, woe to you, and says, look it, if you like me all the time, I'm probably doing something wrong. So let me remind you what your father said to the false prophets, how much they loved them. And when Jesus starts addressing their junk, they get pretty ticked off. The false prophets are getting spoken well of, true prophets are getting killed. And he's reminding them of that now. If all you have are buddies, and, they, and nobody hates you for what you're saying, you're probably not being completely true, with them. So, if we're being jerks for Jesus kind of a thing going on, and we got to go and get into battles on Facebook, or we got to go and argue with people in a way that is not loving, then maybe like we deserve a little bit of that getting hated kind of a thing. But if we're getting hated because we have a job to do, because we're preaching the gospel, because we're real with people, that's part of being a kingdom citizen. To say, this is not the way it's supposed to be. Say, yes, because Jesus is who he says he is. You are who he says you are, which is a sinner in need of a savior. Everybody wants to talk about the love of God, but ain't nobody want to talk about the wrath of God. It's uncomfortable. It doesn't make people happy and it certainly doesn't make people love you. But it's all about being willing to give the whole kingdom message. To be an emissary for the upside down kingdom is to be honest with people about what the Saddam Kingdom is all about. We tell people the whole truth and we gotta be ready to be hated for that. So when I was at chaplain school for the army, I had a really cool opportunity to see several of my classmates take their oath of citizenship, to be American citizens. And there are a few things that stuck out to me about the oath for citizenship, that oath of allegiance, and I'd like to share it with you. It begins with, I hereby declare an oath that I absolutely and entirely renounce and abjure all allegiance and fidelity to any foreign prince, potentate, state, or sovereignty of whom I have therefore been a subject or a citizen. That I will support and defend the Constitution of the United States of America and continues on at the end to say that I take this obligation freely without any mental reservation or purpose of evasion so help me God. Just like what Jesus is saying when he defines what it means to be a kingdom citizen uh, in this oath that these immigrants are taking to receive their citizenship They're not saying I followed a 12-step plan to being an American citizen and now here I am, right? Because I did these things, because I renounced my oath, because I have walked away from who I was, now I am a citizen. They're saying that this is what it means to be a citizen. Not how you get there. It's not an obedience kind of a factor here. It's saying that I understand that if I'm going to call myself a good American citizen, I am going to renounce my former allegiances. Those core things that used to identify me, allegiance to a specific government, allegiance to a specific faction, I now say, I renounce them. In the same way, Being a kingdom citizen, being part of Jesus' upside-down kingdom means renouncing those core identities, those things that used to be who we are. They say, whatever secured me, whatever consumed me, whatever filled me, I now renounce those and say that Jesus, you fill me, Jesus, you consume me, Jesus, you drive me, your message drives me. It's descriptive of what we are as kingdom citizens. Good citizens inherently do these things. They don't do these things and then become citizens. They do these things because they are citizens. And so we find our security in Christ. And so we hunger and thirst for righteousness because we accept a new citizenship that says, what I am is an ambassador to a new king who says that it's not what you have that got you here. It's understanding what you are lacking and transferring an allegiance to a better king. Transferring your love to a higher thing, not our money, not our power, not our popularity, but to a king who died for us. So it's time for us to take a citizenship test, right? And decide what does it mean do I have a head knowledge? There are plenty of people who are not citizens of America who could ace that citizenship test on paper. And to be honest with you, I didn't do so hot when I was 12 years old. And they asked me who the like, sixth president of the United States was. I know somebody like Father Sean, who studied political science, could answer that. I just, don't embarrass me though. We'll talk, we can talk about that later. So you know, you can know these things, you can know a lot and you will encounter people who are not citizens of the kingdom, who know a lot about the Bible, who have a lot of head knowledge. You're gonna meet people who were baptized as a baby, who were confirmed as a teenager, who have been on every position they could have held um, in the church up to that point. And you're gonna meet them at 27 years old and they're gonna be atheists with a lot of head knowledge about who Jesus is. They could tell you a lot about the church. they could tell you a lot about church history. They could tell you a lot about even what it means to be a Christian. But the problem is not about what you know, but what you love. And you can, we can say what we love all we want, but it's that thing which is our highest allegiance that we love. That's our religion. And so when we think about what it means to be a kingdom citizen, we have to think about who do we love? Who is our identity rested in? And if this is news to you, like, let's have a conversation after this. And I want to invite you. Uh, I know that uh, gospel invites are uh, old and, or whatever, but seriously, consider your citizenship as we all must do. And if this is something that you haven't heard before, take the time to consider, like, what is this? Do I recognize Jesus as a king? Do I recognize Jesus as a good teacher? Or do I recognize him as my king and my highest love, that person whom I will serve, where I find my fullness, What consumes me, what drives me, what keeps me going? If that's Jesus, you're an upside down kingdom citizen. Congratulations. You're a Christian. That's what it means to be a Christian, to follow Jesus solely and entirely. But if that's not us, we need to consider when Jesus talks about the blessings, when these Beatitudes are mentioned, is that us or is it the woes? Have I put my confidence in something other than Jesus, something that will pass away in the kingdom come? Let's pray. Father God, thank you so much for your love, for your goodness. Thank you for the gospel, the good news. Lord, thank you for turning the world upside down, Lord, and bringing us into your fold and loving us so much that you would die for us. I ask that you would take us forward from this day make us ambassadors for you. Convict us with your Holy Spirit and make us uncomfortable with the areas of our life that are not focused on you. And we'll thank you for it in Jesus' name, amen.